What do Nick Cave, Delia Smith, Michael Gove and Karen Armstrong have in common? They've all been interviewed by Peter Stanford, the Roman Catholic journalist and biographer. His new book is called What We Talk About When We Talk About Faith, published by Hodder. It features a collection of 44 interviews with high-profile figures who talk unguardedly about faith. How do they balance private faith with public careers? Are doubt and dissent inimical to strong faith? Can belief thrive outside as well as inside religious institutions? The book explores all of these issues and more. I spoke to Peter Stanford about the mix of fascinating people he has interviewed and what he's learnt about doing God in the public square. Subscribe to The Church Times and receive 10 issues for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. So you write, you write in the introduction to the book that the inspiration for interviewing lay in a book club you attended? Yeah, I, I'm uh, part of a book club, um, and like everyone else really of my age, but um, it's, not, uh, it's not a straightforward book club in that we always try and read spiritual books. Yeah. And so we, when we started, we started reading um, pretty heavyweight things like um, you know, A Beginner's Guide to Sufism, and um, <laughs> are not doing very well with them. Uh, or find, we sort of needed an expert there to, to explain it to us. And then we've ranged much more broadly and read you know, novels, poetry and different things. And I suppose partly it was the, um, it was the thing of sitting and reading, reading books that are explicitly or implicitly about faith that made you think. Um, but much more important, I think, was the idea that we just all sat around a table and talked about it. We're a fairly random group of people. We all have faith uh, in different degrees. But um, but to have the opportunity just to, just to talk and to, to, to bounce off something, because if you talk about faith in the abstract, I mean, if you're not careful, you always end up, people ask you about your own faith. And I, I'm always slightly wary of that sounding as if I'm preaching a bit or saying, you know, I'm so good or my life is so wonderful and I do all of these things. So I, I don't do like doing that. But when you're just sitting around a table, uh, we did one this week, uh, Ruma Godden's book, um, In This House of Breed. Um, which was all about nuns in an enclosed convent, and it just just all sorts of different things come up, and and I suppose that's what gave me, uh, well, one of the things that gave me this conviction that it's just good to talk about faith. Uh, in that in that context of the book club, everyone has some sort of faith, so I think we have a kind of vague literacy around it. But I think more generally as well, and um, one of the, the 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 things that made me want to put the book together and indeed started interviewing people in the first place. So the very first interview in the, that is in the book uh, was written in 1984, because I am that old, uh, when I um, had, well, I went to work at the tablet for six months when I left university, and they didn't let me write anything at all. And as so I left, uh, always being a bit bolshy, and I went to work at the Catholic Herald, uh, where they didn't have enough staff, so I was writing everything, as opposed <laughs> to not writing anything. And, um, and obviously all the news bits and the comment bits, and they were all interesting, but... I went in 1984 to interview a woman called Bronwyn Astor, who died very recently, um, whose biography I subsequently wrote. But I went to interview her. She'd been involved in the perfume scandal. She was the supermodel of this of this 50s called Bronwyn Pugh, Balman's Muse. And then after her husband had died, uh, after all the, 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 the Clifton scandal stuff, and just to be really clear, she did. They neither of them did anything wrong. But that's another story. She uh, founded a charismatic Christian community that lived in her house, uh, this rather lovely old manor house, and got very involved with the Théâtre de Chardin movement, all of those things, absolutely fascinating, and just sitting, having this conversation. And Bronwyn was a very bold woman, and I suppose she'd spent a lot of her life feeling she couldn't talk about these things. You don't want to be the kind of supermodel who keeps saying, oh, let's not talk about clothes, let's talk about Théâtre de Chardin. And at Cliveden it wasn't really said because Nancy Astor was still around who was Christian scientist. So she was very, very upfront about these things. 
And you just thought, how interesting. I must go and talk to more people about, you know, my Christian brother's school, we obviously hadn't covered Teilhard de Chardin. And so you just thought, I must go and talk to more people. So it started in that way. And I think one of the things that I found was that, to be absolutely honest, because it's such a long time ago, you know, I'd been to a Catholic school, I went to university, I'm afraid I very, very rarely darkened the door of the Catholic chaplaincy, because I wanted to get away from those things. And then by accident, started working in the church press, not because I felt... I had a vocation to do because they were the ones who offered me a job. And so my own private faith was, was, was pretty much at a low ebb then. And it really was that experience of talking to people about it that made me think about the things that I'd learned in growing up and observations and experience and feel, I suppose, at its simplest that I was going to work with what I'd been given rather than just reject it. In the collection, as you mentioned, it spans, what, 30-odd years of interviews. Um, there must have been a lot of material to choose from. How did you go about selecting which ones to include? Was there a sort of criteria? It's divided into sections, isn't it? It is divided. I mean, the sections are slightly random, but I just, I mean, I, it was difficult to know how to divide it because you could divide it by time, but then you'd have to start with the really early ones. And frankly, they were terrible when I went back and read them. I mean, we really did need a sub-editor there. I mean, I did things like change tense halfway through, uh, which was a bit embarrassing. Actually, the thing I really love most, and I have put the Bronwyn Astor interview in there, but I have put a little note at the beginning, um, I managed not to ask her about the Perfume scandal because I was so, I, I was so, I was so determined to be a good person and to, to kind of only to talk about the interesting things yeah. that I didn't mention it, which I've slightly learned as I'm older. You, I think you have to kind of you have to bring these things out in the open in order to to put them in their right place. So, um, so time wouldn't have worked very well because people would have been so appalled by the first two or three before they got onto the other ones. And I thought about trying to put them together by issues, but people that aren't one issue aren't one issue kind of believers or not believers or faith people in a way. Um, so you know, there's quite a lot of people in there who talk about how their lives, the realities of their lives fall short of the ideals of, of, uh, that their faith teaches them. You know, kind of marriage, divorce, sexuality. You could put them all together. And I thought, no, no, I really don't like that either. So I suppose I've just grouped them generally. There's a group of people who have all um, taken vows in some form or other, but they stretch from a 105-year-old nun down to uh, Sarah Maitland, who is um, uh, now lives the hermit's life to the first women priests in the Church of England. So it's a kind of whole, I went down to Bristol, the first group who were ordained and, or, and interviewed some of them, and that was fascinating. And then different places, and I suppose I work through as well to people who, um, who have faith but don't have institution in that sense. Uh, so they, they, would, they would say they had a, Karen Armstrong being a good example. She sometimes calls herself a freelance monotheist. There, though, they don't belong to a denomination, but they have faith. And finally, to a group of people who have a huge, they're very versed in faith, they have a huge hankering for faith, um, but they don't particularly believe. But obviously, they then start asking what you mean by believe. So uh, Nick Cave, the Australian rock star, is in there. You know, his, the lyrics of his songs are suffused by uh, Old Testament, latterly New Testament images. Of course, that's an interview from the Church Times Indeed. in there. And uh, Wendy Perriam, the novelist, who has lost her faith, but everything about her. I mean, at the end of the interview, she's had a terrible tragedy in her life. Her, her only daughter had died. At the end of the interview, having told me that she lost her faith and really wanted that comfort, she walked off into the church and lit candles. I mean, I, I just don't think it's as clear cut as either you have it or you don't have it. So it's across that whole range. Yeah. That section is The Outsiders, also yes. includes Jimmy McGovern and, yeah. and Lorna Byrne. It, it seemed interesting to me how those people had, had perhaps called themselves ex-Catholics or not formal believers in a formal sense, but they're still constantly in dialogue with 
God or faith. Or Absolutely. And their work as well. So what, what the book is about, it's about people talking about faith who perhaps might not, you might not even realise they had a faith mm. particularly. So I suppose the classic one in there is Dermot O'Leary. Well, I only realised he had a faith because he came to interview me for a programme he was making called Some of My Best Friends Are Catholics for Channel 4, I think. And then we got on very well and started having a kind of discussion about it. Funny the things that come out of interviews. So what came out of that interview with Dermot O'Leary was at the end he said, so if I had children, what kind of school would I send them to? And I said, oh, my kids go to a really nice Catholic school around the corner. And he said, well, I live around the corner too. So how do I get them into that school? And I said, well, obviously you just apply, but you know, why not come and see it? And I said, why not come and do an event for us? So we did an event and Dermot O'Leary came and hosted the school quiz and, and did things. So, you know, these things, these encounters lead to other things. So people who don't, you know, aren't obvious for having a face, but who talk about it very frankly, Dermot being a, a good example. And it's kind of lifting the lid on that, really. You talked about the section at the end of people who, uh, uh, everything about them uh, talks of faith. I mean, the other person who's in there is Jimmy McGovern, brought up Catholic, has very recently uh, done a series on the BBC, which if it doesn't win prizes, there'll be a terrible, it'll be a terrible anti-religious injustice uh, called Broken, which mm. is all about a Catholic priest played by Sean Bean in Liverpool. And it's really about how he holds the community. It's what priests actually do, as opposed to, I mean, most people from the outside will think, oh, well, they say mass, they dress up in silly things. And um, unfortunately, some rather unkind people will think they're, they're, they um, abuse people as well. Um, this is what actually really happens. And it's, it, it, it's, it's pitch perfect, it's detail perfect, gets to the heart of all of those issues. And then uh, you know, halfway through the interview, he says, but I've lost my faith. But he has this tremendous yearning for it to come back. And in a way, you think... By writing as you do, by making that series, by making that possible, that, that's sort of an act of faith. And so what, what does that mean? What does belief mean? What does faith mean? So you interrogate the words as well as the practicalities. Mm. Well, I was also struck that some of the people you interview, quite high profile people, have a, a, a strong sense of certainty about their faith. So people like Sir Peter Fahey, yeah. um, people who've gone out of the public eye like Ruth Kelly, Sarah Tether, who... Um, I was fascinated by how they seemed able perhaps to talk more openly about their faith having left the public eye. But I mean, Sarah Tedder had been on a 30-day retreat after which she decided to... Leave Parliament. Leave Parliament. So Sarah Tedder had been my local MP, actually, and uh, was a brilliant MP. And actually, (laughs) there's a whole part of me that thinks... If only politicians had the integrity of Sarah, Sarah Tether, I'd have slightly more. I'd sli- have slightly more faith in politicians at the moment. Um, but she never really talked about her faith at all, and she took an awful lot of persuading to get her to do it. And so she went on an Ignatian retreat for thirty days because she was trying to work out whether she wanted to continue in politics or do something different. And actually, she said something really interesting in there. She said that being being in politics and being the kind of focus of attention, she thought was very damaging to her and to her sort of inner life and that she didn't want to feel she was important. And even though she wasn't important as a kind of junior minister or an MP, the, the, the whole apparatus around her was all about feeling her views were important. And I just thought that was rather fascinating and honest. And she's now working for the Jesuit Refugee Service, she now runs the Jesuit Refugee Service, and really didn't want to be interviewed. Took an awful lot of persuading to, to, to sit down and talk about it. But again, it's this whole thing of being guided by faith and, you know, the, uh, the issue about immigration and how we treat people, uh, refugees, 
it, 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 it all comes together in that. The other person in the book who is, is really fascinating, and you rarely hear people talk like this anymore, is Patricia Scotland, um, mm. who is now the Secretary General of the Commonwealth, was Attorney General under Labour, uh, the first, the youngest ever QC, I think, a really amazing woman. And she talks absolutely directly about faith. So she'll say, you know, I think she uses the phrase, God's fingerprints for everything that I do. So, you know, when she was asked if she would come into the House of Lords and be a government minister by, I think, Tony Blair, she prays about it. She talks about praying about it. And she hearing ta- from God. And hearing from God. God speaks back Which to her. Which is what Alistair Campbell was terrified of people yeah. talking about Blair. Well, indeed, if, if he didn't want Tony Blair to say he, he was doing God, God only. Well, sorry, I can't say God in that context. Kind of, who knows what he thought of what, how Patricia Scotland was speaking in that way. But she's absolutely explicit. And in a way, it's a way I would never speak. It was a way I would, I would always kind of fudge around it. But it's very good to be challenged by that and think, actually, do I feel? Do I feel in some way guided? And if I do, why won't I say that? And I suppose, uh, I suppose I'm a, a, a terrible example of one of those um, sort of chattering class liberals who sits around a table of, of atheists, and they'll say, "Oh, you're very religious, aren't you?" Go, "No, no, no, not really, not really." Because actually, I think one of the things that people of faith have learned when they do talk about their faith in public is it's usually uncomfortable. So if you say, I'm Catholic, people will say, oh, what do you think about all these priests abusing people all the time? And you always want to say, well, it's, it's absolutely terrible. And let's be really clear, it's absolutely terrible. And the Catholic Church has handled it absolutely terribly. But if you look at the numbers, it's about 4% of priests. And I think, you know, we want to put it, oh, well, so you're, you're moving away from it, are you? And then, you know, why does the church hate women? Why does the church hate gays? You know, I went to... Um, I went to a wedding recently of uh, some really old friends, a gay couple who got married, and it was great. And I actually sat there and thought, kind of, God is here, really. If God is love and God, you know, what is better than people who've been together for 30 years making a, a commitment to themselves? But at the reception afterwards, one of the uh, one of the partners in the wedding, his his um, his family were, were, were Baptists originally, so quite a lot of family friends. There. And people just kept coming and sitting next to me and saying, you're that Catholic, aren't you? You must find it really uncomfortable being here. Mm. And you thought, in the end, you're almost kind of weighed down in not talking. So I lack the courage, really, of someone like Patricia Scotland. But I suppose I hold up her example in the book uh, as, as something to aspire to. And do you find being a fellow traveller, as it were, in, you know, to some extent, you're, obviously your faith would be different to the people you interview, but you are an insider talking to me. You're not coming as an ardent secularist saying, look at these odd religious people and what they believe. Does that help draw it out of them? I think it, I think it helps in that you're not there to kind of undermine it. Um, uh, you know, I've done enough book festival events uh, with uh, ardent atheist secularists who just feel they have to attack you. I did one really, really uncomfortable one with Richard Dawkins who just stood there and shouted at me. Mm. And not I, so I'm not doing that. I think it also helps if you come come with some some understanding in in, in that situation. I mean, a lot of these interviews, some of them are, are as I've said already, in the Church Times, the Tablet, the Catholic Herald. Quite a lot of them for the Daily Telegraph, who I write for now, uh, Guardian, um, Independent. Poor, if only the Independent was still here. Lots of really interesting things there. So I'm not only doing it for a, an in audience, but I think it just helps when you're having the conversation about faith if you understand things. And I think it just it sort of helps that you understand what people are talking about to some extent. You even understand the language. One of the problems with talking about faith is language. So here's a really good example. I've just uh, reviewed for The Telegraph uh, that new Mary Magdalene film, uh, which is out at the moment with Rooney Mara, 
very serious of purpose, uh, quite long. And some, one of the sub-editors at The Telegraph started talking about a change something I'd written and luckily sent it back to me and it sort of said, you know, Mary wanted to be one of the disciples and she was at, you know, wanted, wanted to be one of the disciples and she was at Last Supper with Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And then you had to say, actually, Apostles is the Last Supper and Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, well, you can debate who any of them were, but it's really unclear whether they were there or not or they were other people. So let's go for Peter because he was definitely there. Let's go for Judas because we know he's... And it's that sort of... I know that they're rather precise things and they probably don't matter, but it's those words and it's just understanding that thing. And I think also um, uh, because these all of these interviews in a way are kind of like short stories, they're people talking about their life and belief and life usually starts, you know, with childhood and growing up. And it just helps if you've been through the same sort of experience. Um, you know, I went to my Christian brother's school and, 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 uh, and I, I understand those things and, and the journey, the way, that, the way the churches have changed actually. Um, I mean, obviously I'm ancient, but it's, it, I mean, one of the good things about being ancient is, and I can't remember if I say this at the beginning of the book, but, you know, in those early 80s uh, times, mid 80s, late 80s, it seemed to me then that um, that one of the things that was changing, particularly with Cardinal Basil Hume as Archbishop of Westminster, was that a lot of those anti-Catholic prejudices, which still just about existed then, you know, you couldn't be Lord Chancellor if you were Catholic, uh, the great, you know, would have caused a huge fuss, the idea a Catholic might even get to be Prime Minister or you know, marry into the royal family or any of those things, they were all changing and going. And I thought, oh, well, that whole sort of that slight prejudice against faith has gone now. We can all be very straightforward about it. And then on you come about 10 years and you get this kind of militant atheist kind of voice that comes up with Richard Dawkins, where, well, certainly my experience of Richard Dawkins is he just shouts you down. Right. And, and perhaps, you know, Perhaps you should be stronger. Perhaps we should all be stronger. And, and there are people who stand up. I'm afraid at the book festival where he was shouting at me, I just had this terrible quiver in my stomach as, I, as he was doing it. And I, you know, like, I felt like I'd been through a trauma. And I'm sure I was very inarticulate because mm. I'm not very good at being shouted at. And, and I'm not very good at shouting back in that sense. So I think things change and I and I think we really are in a situation now where oddly that Alistair Campbell line about we don't do God I think that really is the kind of orthodoxy now for people in public life don't do God don't do God and of course the terrible terrible irony of it all is what we know is the person he was telling us didn't do God was doing God all the time yeah. um you know what do we know about Tony Blair he did God and he did God when he was in public office. So let's talk about it. I mean, what, you know, we now have a prime minister who does do God in that sense and is quite, seems relatively keen to be photographed walking out of her church. I've asked about five times. She has a faith advisor. I've asked, could I talk to her? Oh, she doesn't like talking about that. Well, well, why be photographed going into your church if you, if you don't want to talk about it? So I, I just think we should all just be a little bit bolder. I mean, I'm not saying take a soapbox and be like Donald, Donald Soper at Hyde Park Corner, but let's just be a little less apologetic. I mean, Michael Gove's an interesting interview. He seems to have quite a nuanced kind of Anglican position on faith, where he, you know, so I'm a Christian, I worship in the Church of England, but you say you're influenced by faith, people seem to think you're claiming a divine mandate for your actions. He's very aware. Interesting, that, isn't it? Mm. But, he, but, he, but he's, not ashamed, he's not shy about saying it, is he? No. And, I mean, one of the things that's really, I, I did some, I run a small prison reform charity called the Longford Trust, and we did, when Michael Gove was Justice Secretary, we, we had quite a lot to do with each other. And I noticed in his language then, if you listen to him talking at prisons or talking at kind of conferences, it's so biblically based, his language. He, he speaks very well, he uses words very well, but he uses biblical phrases. They drop in and in to the, the, the conversation. I think there are examples in the interview there. So it's, it's interesting, those levels. I'm not saying that, that people 
who are elected. Well, I mean, well, Tim Farron gets into this situation, doesn't he? He says, you know, you can't be a practicing Christian and, and, and be a politician. Um, I think what he really meant is he couldn't be the sort of practicing Christian he is, because I'm afraid I don't agree with, with, with what his interpretation. So he damned us all by association with that. And you can't be a politician. I mean, how can he say that? We've got a, we've got a prime minister who's a practicing politician. Maybe the leader of the Lib Dems is a little bit difficult with those kind of well, I think the Lib Dems, views on... Indeed. And I think the Lib Dems might want to think about their own problems, really, as opposed to say it's a problem for everyone yeah. else and problem for society. Well, what effect has talking to different people about their faith had on your own faith journey? I think it's um, made it much stronger, really. Uh, I mean, I suppose uh, we've mentioned Patricia Scotland beforehand, who talks about God's hand being on things. And uh, when I took my first job at the tablet and then went to work at the Catholic Herald and started doing these interviews, I think I just thought it was a kind of career move and it was something I was going to do. And uh, my faith was relatively weak then. And I think the uh, going through this process, first of all, has brought me back to faith and made me realize how important it is for me, but also how important it is for society. And I think also it's deepened it. You just you meet extraordinary people. I mean, one of the one of the people in the book, um, Amos Oz, the um, the uh, Israeli writer. We just we sat and had this kind of surreal conversation. He brought out a book about Judas, and obviously I'd written about Judas, so that was really interesting. His was a novel, uh, mine was a nonfiction. His agent is Deborah Owen, uh, the old Foreign Secretary David Owen's wife, and they've got this very beautiful house in Limehouse. He was staying with them. We were sitting out on a really sunny day on this terrace with the River Thames behind us, looking up at Tower Bridge there. Looking looking up at Canary Wharf there with all the kind of city boats going past. And he was telling me how he'd really always quite liked Jesus. Um, but these these were the shortcomings. These were the shortcomings in Jesus. He didn't feel Jesus was human enough. And you think, gosh, I'm having this really surreal conversation. And through the window, David Dome was kind of tapping away on a typewriter. And you're thinking, how odd, these conversations. And it just, you know, and you think, but do I agree with his objection to Jesus? I've never thought about it that way. So I think, I mean, what I hope with this book, in a way, by collecting them all together, I mean, newspapers are newspapers and people throw them away, by collecting them all together, a few people who I've given copies to already, I said, I put it on my bedside table and I read two or three in the evening and then I can think about it as I'm going to, going to sleep. And I hope in a very simple, it's a very simple, very gentle book in lots of ways. It's just meant to be a very gentle prompt to say, you know, that, there are things that all these people are saying that chime with things that we're worrying about and that they're, hopefully most of them are covered in that. Who was most inspirational, do you say? I mean, I was struck by the Desmond Tutu interview. He is, he is extraordinary. Yeah, the, the reconciliation process in South Africa. And how it applies elsewhere. The other thing about Desmond Tutu, which I would say, which, which was just extraordinary, was I did that interview, um, I think, well, it must have been in 2004, uh, and it was just when uh, my father died. I can't remember if I didn't write it up or there was some delay in it being published. So someone let Desmond Tutu know that, or his office know that he wasn't going to run for a couple of weeks because my father had died. And the next thing, I, I went back to my desk and there was a message on my answering machine on my desk saying, it's Archbishop Tutu here and I've heard your father's died and I just want you to know I'm remembering him in my prayers. And already I was incredibly moved that he, that he should... Meeting people makes you realise that they're kind of genuine as well sometimes. You just... Uh, yeah, and meeting people also makes you realise the ones who aren't genuine, but he absolutely is a genuine item. So that was good enough. That was extraordinary enough. And then two days later, I was actually sitting at my desk and the phone rang and I picked it up and he said, it's Archbishop Tutu here. And I just want, I don't really like leaving messages because it doesn't seem very sincere. So I was ringing to say, and you just think, you know, you've got all these things going on in the world. You've got all these things going on in South Africa. You're doing all of these things and you're worrying about me. So he can go down as my hero. Do you have a particular technique for interviewing? I mean, some interviewers say they start softly to make people comfortable and then come in with the more tricky questions later, or is it much more of a 
the conversation. Well, as you can see, I talk too much. So um, I suppose I talk a bit as well. I think um, the easiest way often to get into these things, particularly if people have been raised in a faith, is to talk about their raising in a faith, because in a sense, it's far enough away and it becomes much, much more anecdotal. So I've got a problem with it. <coughs> and often there's, often there's a reason why you're meeting people. I mean, one of the people who really surprised me who's in the book is, was Fern Britton, who the Telegraph, this was the Telegraph's idea. They said, would you meet Fern Britton? I said, what, the woman who does breakfast TV? And they said, yes, she's been to Jerusalem, she's been on a pilgrimage, and she's got a tattoo. And, and part of my heart slightly sank. I thought, okay, well, that's going to be really interesting. So anyway, I went off and interviewed her, and she was lovely and charming, as you'd imagine, because that's why she's so successful on television. But then she told me the whole story of tattoos and pilgrimages, which I absolutely... I'd written a book about pilgrimage a few years before, and I really didn't know this, that there's a tradition in Jerusalem that when you go to Jerusalem, and this is a tradition that goes on from the 3rd, third, 4th third, century when, when um, uh, people first started going there on pilgrimage, or, or Christians started going there on pilgrimage, um, that the, there were people that you'd, you'd have a tattoo... And it was a way of showing other people that you'd been. It was a way of making a connection. They'd see the, seen the tattoo. So she'd had this very discreet tattoo. So I'm sitting here stroking my wrist and we're, we, we can't see pictures. Uh, this little tattoo done on, on her, her wrist. So I learned something then. And then she started talking about her own faith background, which was an extraordinary one in that her parents had not particularly been believers. But as a seven or eight-year-old child, she had so badly wanted to go to church. They used to give her the collection money. And she'd walk herself in the evening and go to Evensong at her local church. And and then her decision to um, to be confirmed when she was much older, and uh, and you just thought, gosh, kind of the most unlikely people have the most profound stories to tell you, really. And I think that's another of the things that you learn um, uh, is is not is not to judge people, and and actually, again, by bringing these subjects up, by talking about them interesting things come out. I mean, the, the converse, of course, is true. You go and interview the most obvious person who you think is going to have absolutely fascinating things to say, and you listen afterwards and think, as you probably will when you listen back to this interview, and think, God, that's tedious. Um, and, and people really don't go very far. But my experience generally is that it is, it's one of the most fascinating subjects you can talk to people about, and we just don't do it. Have you found the secular press less open than it was to publishing interviews either with religious figures or about the faith of public figures? I'm, I'm kind of nervous of this. I'm, I'm meant to be talking at some um, uh, conference in a couple of weeks' time where one of the, uh, the propositions is that the, the media generally uh, don't understand faith and therefore you need you need very specific faith-based bits of media. Now, clearly, Church Times readers, as a former editor of the Catholic Herald and a columnist for the tablet, I believe in faith-based media. I think it's really important to talk, talk amongst yourselves, uh, to talk in a way that um, is a sort of faith reflection on other things that are going on. It needs to be outward-looking rather than inward-looking. So I believe in that. I can honestly say that I've never particularly felt... Um, with the newspapers, I worked first for The Guardian, then for The Independent, and then for The Telegraph now. I've never felt they're particularly hostile to that. Um, I think sometimes you have to argue a bit harder for why somebody is interesting. And sometimes I think you have to use a little bit of subterfuge in the sense that you'll say... You know, I want to go and interview. I want to go and talk to Fern Britain about her new program, or I want to go and talk to so and so about their new book or their new series or whatever. And then you have a conversation about faith, which is fascinating. And then if you write it up, I've never been in a situation where I've written up a lot about faith and not very much about the book or the series. And then the editors come back and say, "Oh, we don't want any of that. Can we just go back to what we first agreed?" They'll say, "No, that's really interesting, isn't it?" Yeah. If you if you straightforwardly say, "Can I do a faith interview with?" 
blah blah um, you'll probably get a no because I go oh, I'm not sure I'm not sure we want too much Easter they love it at Easter there's always Easter Sunday Christopher Jameson who I interview in there um, that happened because the Independence on Sunday rang me this is the beginning of either, the week before Easter and said um, oh god it's Easter Sunday isn't it we need to think of so we need to have someone vaguely religious for our big interview on Sunday who could you think of so I think there is still that sort of marking the, marking the seasons but I don't think there's any problem in, in getting it in there I think the problem is if you if you try and do it in a in a sort of pompous, um, uh, excluding language, you know, I'm going to talk about the importance of the sacraments. I don't think national newspapers. Well, you, you've got you've got to make that connection. It's about connections. The book is about making a connection with people, in in print, and that connection hopefully being made with readers, and it all being understandable and recognisable. I think if you talk in a, an unrecognisable way, and that's as true of the uh, faith-based media as the as the general media, then you're just excluding yourself from the conversation. It's all about conversation. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.